Hi, everybody. Liam here. Today's guest is Connor Doherty, who's a New York Times reporter and the author of a brand new book called Golden Gates, Fighting for Housing in America. The reason I'm excited about this book is that Connor really digs into the deep roots of the Bay Area's housing crisis to explore how we got here, how we got to this era when so many people are being displaced or spending half their paycheck on rent or ending up on the streets. Even if you do have a decent place to live, you've probably lost friends who couldn't afford to stay here anymore and moved far far away. That's something that's been happening to me a lot lately, and it's scary and depressing to feel like your community is disintegrating. So yeah, this episode isn't just about the East Bay or history, but there are plenty of both in this conversation and in the book. Like, did you know that Berkeley was probably the first city in America to pass a neighborhood zoning ordinance mandating single-family homes? I didn't. In Golden Gates, Connor gets into the origins of a lot of factors that have shaped this crisis, like Prop 13 and Article 34 and the Costa-Hawkins Act. And here's the thing. This housing crisis is really complicated. It brings together everything from climate change to tax policy to endangered species habitats to parking and traffic. It's huge. This book helps contextualize these issues by looking at various struggles through different characters' viewpoints. Even if you don't agree with everyone who Connor interviews, and you certainly won't, I definitely don't, you'll understand where they're coming from a little better after reading this. His reporting brings compassion and empathy to topics that are often associated with bitter, nasty political controversies. And that's important because, and I know this sounds trite, but it's true, this crisis won't be solved without some compromise and sacrifice from all of us. Okay, so before we get to the interview, I just want to mention that I've got a bunch of events coming up this spring. I'll be doing things at the Oakland Museum, the Cal Academy of Sciences, uh, the Oakland Library, probably a few other places over the next month or two. So if you want to get all the details, Sign up for my newsletter. You can find the subscribe link in the upper right-hand corner at eastbayyesterday.com. As always, thank you so much to the Patreon supporters and other donors for keeping this show alive. I couldn't do it without you. Oh, and also, I did a whole episode last month about the history of racial discrimination in Bay Area housing markets. If you're interested in these kinds of issues and you haven't listened to that one yet, look it up. The title is Unfair Housing, Why Racism and Real Estate Are So Hard to Untangle. All right, here's my conversation with Connor Doherty, who, I should add, is an Oakland resident and has lived in the Bay Area for most of his life. We're just going to jump right into him talking about the book's unique narrative format and why he set it up that way. I'm Liam O'Donohue, and you're listening to East Bay Yesterday Q&A. The way the book is structured is essentially the first three quarters of the book are different people on a particular journey. The first two chapters, they're both very short, so they kind of are one, is this woman, Sonia, kind of becoming a Yimby 
and kind of pushing for how do you get how do you make it politically possible to build more housing and create a, a movement and laws for that then you have this 15 year old girl who's trying to keep her family from being evicted and you sort of say what will shield someone like this from an $800 rent increase? That's her problem right now. Her problem is not that they're not building enough luxury units. How do we solve that problem? Then there's some history. Then there's this suburban kind of fight. And then towards the end of the book, you start to see all these people come together. You know, they're fighting with each other. They're on different sides of different campaigns. And then at the end of the book, they literally are in the same room to be, you know, like kind of fighting. In all those chapters where you're seeing people on their particular journey, I think it essentially takes their perspective. The perspectives in this story are perspectives that rise from people trying to get something they want. There is a 15-year-old girl, like I just said, who wants to keep her family from becoming homeless and needs to fight this rent increase to do it. There is a political activist who wants to make it easier to build high density housing in neighborhoods where they don't allow it. There is a suburban city manager who is trying to get his city to accept a slightly higher density. He's actually trying to play the middle road. And then there's a nun who is trying to keep affordable apartments affordable and prevent a landlord from taking them over. Will keep a community from basically being, you know, scattered to the wind. So I almost see this book as like a interwoven, interlocking stories. And I like that approach. I think that that's the right approach because cities are these very complicated beings. That is the only way I can find as a writer to bring that level of nuance to a story because you are seeing people where they are and you are, are and you are understanding the journey they are on from their perspective. There is nothing that will help that 15-year-old girl other than something like rent control or subsidies. There is nothing you can do. You could you could build a community land trust, you could prevent someone from raising her rent, or you could essentially subsidize her rent. Those are those are the only things you could do to help her with that situation in that moment. However, when you're taking the perspective of a kind of a more regionally looking, you know, academic type person who has value, they do not have to own the conversation, but they should not be completely shut out of it. Yeah. And who's looking at like the longer term view. And they're looking at history. They're looking at, they're looking at, they're looking at forces that have, you know, been in the world before any of these people were even born. They're going to have a different perspective. And I think that if you tried to put those together in like a kind of more essayish, or, or, or a more politically driven book, I don't know what the right word is, but a book that was like less character driven, it would fall apart on itself because you would you would you would say, well, what the hell is this guy saying? Like, is he is he for more building or is he for the community land trusts or what? What the hell is it? You know, and and it would just start to feel. A, contradictory, and then B, like I was trying to be all things to all people. Right. And, and, and I think that when you let characters tell their own stories, I feel that that nuance can be absorbed by people in a way that as readers, they will accept more than if one person's telling them a million things. 
Yeah, and and it helps to have a character to kind of guide us through some of these labyrinthine battles. And I'm I'm thinking specifically of the fight over the development Lafayette. I'd love it if you give me sort of like the overview of the Lafayette story and um, why you felt that was such a good illustration of some of the challenges that we are facing now in terms of confronting this affordable affordable housing crisis. This was a very long fight that is still going on today. So basically, here's what happened. There was a plot of land over there by the 24 freeway, uh, a little bit near BART in Lafayette. And this plot of land has been owned by this old hermit in, uh, who had been a Lafayette character since you know the 40s or something. And they, uh, the state actually condemned some of the land to build the 24. So that's how, how long he's been there. The city knew the land was zoned for like hundreds of apartments. It was a relic from before the city was incorporated. They always knew this, but the guy never seemed to have any intention to develop it. So they were like, let's just not worry about it, right? And the city manager, who kind of saw this thing coming decades ago, said, why don't we go ahead and downzone this? And they didn't want to do it. Uh, they thought it wasn't the right time or thought it was too expensive or something. And this is just this rolling hills land in Lafayette. So everyone who drives past it, many of them very wealthy, just always assumed this was open space. So I don't know what they... It's not too far from BART. Yeah. Well, yes, though I, we can get into that. But okay. yeah, yes, it's not too far from BART, although it is, it's not, it would be very weird to walk from there to BART. It'd be like essentially walking along a highway, you know. But nevertheless, they all assumed it was open space or something like that. They certainly never thought it was zoned for like 800 apartments. So one day, this developer just shows up and proposes 315 apartments on this land. This would probably be the biggest, I don't have this like 100% true, but I, I'm 99% true this would be the biggest single development in Lafayette history. The city manager and all the people who got this application are like, this is, this is going to be a problem. They did not know. Because they know that the current residents of Lafayette are going to freak out. They're going to go nuclear. And they're sitting there and they think to themselves, this developer, he's crazy. He knows we're never going to allow this. Why would he even do this? So the city does what a lot of cities typically do, which is they say, oh, we're just going to downzone the land under him. We'll just say, oh, tomorrow uh, you can only build four houses there. Therefore, you can't build 315 there. Now it's against the law. So he fires off a letter or his lawyer fires off a letter that says, if you do this, we're going to sue you under this thing called the California Housing Accountability Act, which is a law that Jerry Brown passed way back in the 1980s when we were in a housing crisis the last time after that late 70s housing crisis. So the city very quickly realizes, oh man, we got a problem. We are in a weird, we're legally boxed in and they consulted multiple lawyers and they realized like they're, they're in trouble. The city manager goes to the guy and basically says, can we just like work something out? They have all these meetings. Eventually they come to a deal where they're going to build 44 homes instead of 315. This will become important in a second. The developer got a deal that said, essentially, if this is a separate development that I am proposing here, if for some reason it shouldn't work out, I can always go back to the original 315. So this convinces a bunch of neighbors, but not all of them, to accept this. And so years and years go by and they finally approve the project. In the middle of all this, the BARF people decide they're going to sue. What does BARF stand for again? The Bay Area Renters Federation. It's Sonia, the person I've been talking about. So she goes and she essentially sues. Now, this is a wild idea. She basically says, 
I'm going to sue the developer. I'm going to sue the city, but she ended up naming the developer in the lawsuit, saying you violated the Housing Accountability Act by downs by by making it a 44 single family home project instead of this original 315 apartments. She essentially files the lawsuit that the developer had threatened to file. But the developer is of course now on the other side. So he so it's like an impossible legal case cuz she's saying they unfairly forced him to build this smaller thing and he's sitting there on the other side telling a judge that's not what happened. I, I, no, I didn't. No, yeah, so it's like <laughs> this impossible situation. A couple of years go by, about, about a year and a half. The residents are still so mad about the new, smaller, compromised 44 single family home. A lot of them simply basically don't want anything. Yeah, well, they were, they were willing to accept like five or 10 or 15 homes, but yes. By the way, this is a 22 acre parcel. So this is like, you know, four homes would be like five acre home. You know what I mean? Just think about that. Next to downtown Lafayette and BART. Not exactly the highest intensity land use. So, all right, so here's what happens. They decide they're going to have a referendum in mid-2018, and it passes. So this referendum basically says that it overturns the city's decision to approve the 44 single-family homes. All right. What's the first thing that happens is the developer shows up again pretty soon after the election and says, okay, I'm going to build the 315 apartments instead. So that's where it stands today. The even more hilarious convoluted part is that in the meantime, Sonia went from like, Sonia and the bar for people and this guy, Brian Hanlon, who's now very well known in housing circles. He runs a group called California YMB. They went and got the law passed to make it almost impossible to lose a Housing Accountability Act case. On top of that, when they wrote the law, the fact that they lost their case in Lafayette was essentially what they, so they almost wrote the law specifically to prevent anybody from ever losing a case on that project. I mean, it would apply to other projects too, but I just meant their, the lessons that they, the lawsuit, they took the lessons that, of losing that lawsuit and wrote the law with that. So it's almost like tailor-made for the situation. I mean, I'm not predicting what's gonna happen because let me tell you, after following this thing, I've learned predictions are very, very fraught, but it seems like what's kind of happening is they're going to end up probably having to build the 315 apartments. I mean, again, you never know in California, but it's, it's this ridiculous situation where in 2011, a long time ago, somebody goes and proposes 315 apartments. They get them to lower it to 44 homes. The neighbors won't accept the 44 homes, vote it down, and in voting it down may well have affirmatively voted for the 315 apartments. It's, it's, a, it's a bizarre, crazy story. And in the course of all this, the city manager, and it was a fascinating, fascinating evolution I watched because I, I met the city manager the first time in 2015, Steve Falk. He was very against this project. He was like, oh, I don't want the Bay Area to look like Texas and all this stuff. Very local control kind of guy. By the end of it, he started writing all these city memos, antagonizing the city by, by, by writing memos in favor of things that the council was clearly not in favor of. And he really got himself in some hot water, but he was nearing retirement. He just didn't care anymore. So he eventually tells me in the middle of this whole thing, he told me this in confidence, I'm going to quit today. If you want to come by and see it, come watch. So I go to the city council meeting. Uh, and then he starts reading this letter that says, you know, I resign and blah, 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 blah. But he doesn't read the whole letter. 
the part he doesn't read, which eventually ends up on Twitter and everything, is him saying, you know, we are in a climate disaster. We are an affordable housing disaster. If we don't, you know, we are a little city. We can't solve this on our own, but we do have to have some role in solving it. Anyway, so then in the end... It was essentially a very forceful letter where he's criticizing the, the people of Lafayette for opposing almost any development, right? Yes, and so he says at the end... I think that we need to build high-density housing because climate change and all these existential crises of our time, we, even as a very small city, have to play some role in that. It was, for me, I have now been covering and interviewing this guy pretty continuously for like three years. Uh, and it was a fascinating evolution I saw in him. And it's, it, it's really a nice analogy in a weird way for the evolution the country has gone through in that time, not completely, but a little bit, which is that we are now in various forms talking about removing some degree of local control. When they say a housing production bill in Sacramento, that's what they're talking about. When the Democratic presidential candidates, including Bernie Sanders, talk about zoning reform, that's what they're talking about. You can talk about this with carrot and sticks and all these different things, and you could hash out the politics of this a million different ways. But the basic gist is people are saying we need to think about this more regionally, more nationally, more statewide, and less as a piecemeal, each individual project type framework. This housing shortage that we're currently experiencing certainly isn't the first time that California or the Bay Area has gone through a housing shortage. Is this current crisis unique or because it feels like it's worse than ever? All of America had a really bad housing shortage after World War II. The reason that happened was similar but different to today, which is that there was the Great Depression when nobody built anything, followed by the war years when they were rationing. So most of the industry was directed towards the war effort. So when that ended, there was no housing. The housing they did build tended to be temporary although some of that still exists and we're having fights over it today, even though it was always intended to be temporary. And what happened, though, was we built the suburbs. And I mean, it's not that the suburbs didn't exist, but the post-war suburbs, as we now know them, boomed at that time. So there's a lot of things with that boom that we are reconciling with, many of them very, very bad. The legacies of climate change, the segregation that was caught up in the suburbs, the wealth inequality that has resulted from inequitable distributions of home ownership. But we did at least solve the housing problem. And there was at least a national recognition that we needed to build a lot of housing and fast. That went off the rails, particularly in the Bay Area. People started entombing streams and culverts. And it was hard for people to see where it would end. It's fine if you plow over a farm or two. We don't live in farms. We live in cities. You know, there's a, if you want to live in a, in a rural area, there are plenty of places for you in America. There are not plenty of thriving cities. Or there, there, are, there are several, but there aren't as, <laughs> they're harder to get to. We need housing near them. Yes. And so people, it was hard for people to see where this would end. And this idea that you would just always build another freeway and always build another suburb, just it just did not feel in the in the literal sense of the word, sustainable. So people started rebelling for good reason. And in, in the Bay Area, this began with the freeway revolts, which were by and large good. 
in San Francisco, they were building the Embarcadero Freeway. When I was growing up, there was a freeway right in front of the ferry building. Right, they famously wanted to build a uh, freeway basically through the panhandle of Golden Gate Park. Yeah, there were several. I think there was like eight freeways that they, the only one they had built was the Bayshore. So, so these were all good things. What I think started to happen is that stopping sprawl, which was obviously a very good thing to do, became an excuse for stopping everything. And there are all sorts of examples of this, particularly like in Marin County, for instance, they put aside all this state and federal land for open space and for the, for the headlands and all that. I don't think anybody would want to undo that decision. But caught up in that is it's like impossible to build like a slightly taller building in San Rafael now. So you should be building higher density housing in, you know, near commercial centers. You probably shouldn't be building it on the Marin Headlands. And I think that, that, that this impulse to do all these very good things became the vehicle politically and otherwise to stop it everywhere. So by the 1970s, middle 70s, you can start to see that the Bay Area has become an expensive place. And by 1980, housing prices in the Bay Area were about 50% higher than the nation. A decade earlier, they were about the same. They were about the median, uh, the median uh, house price in the Bay Area is roughly the median house price in the United States. It was not that more people came and we just ran out of places to put them. They did stop building housing. The current housing crisis, the current housing shortage, as we are experiencing it today, seems to begin around 1979, 1975. That was when economists and planners and geographers and all sorts of different disciplines, they weren't all economists, started saying, we have a housing problem and this housing problem is largely of our own making. And what's fascinating to me is how much of the debate is essentially unchanged from those days. At the beginning, people said, well, this is more to do with the economy and the tech industry because Intel and all those companies were big companies then. And this, I mean, the tech industry did not just show up here. They've been here. I mean, they, pre, they predate the counterculture. So this, so much of what we're experiencing today, I, I think I can draw a pretty clear line that it starts in the mid-70s. the most dire aspect of California's housing crisis right now, which um, we're seeing just all over the place in Oakland, is the drastic increase in homelessness. And you do get into this in the book. You explain how, you know, there's been eras in U.S. history when there's been spikes in homelessness. Of course, during like the Great Depression, for example, you know, anytime there's a recession or an economic downturn, people end up on the streets more than usual. But you also explain, uh, I think, really well how there is something really unique about this current homelessness crisis in that it's kind of ironic that President Trump is on TV all the time talking about how great the economy is. You know, the stock market is up, property values are, are rising. So at the same time that it seems like there is more and more wealth coming into the Bay Area, it's driving more and more people onto the streets. So this is going to be kind of a multi-part question, but you talk about how homelessness first started um, becoming more widespread and persistent during the 1980s. So I'm wondering what led to that kind of first wave of this homelessness crisis. And then um, why has it exploded so much in, in recent years? Homelessness as we define it now 
essentially did not exist until about 1980. There are examples of people using the word homeless in the 70s, but they almost always mean homeless as in they don't really have like a connection to people. You know, like they live alone in a hotel and they don't go home for Christmas or something. Like that. Or uh, more commonly, they meant someone who was like literally displaced by like a natural disaster or a fire or something like that. I think that what homelessness is, is mental health problems and drug problems are obviously very tied up in homelessness, but they do not explain it. There are plenty of places in America where there is a lot less homelessness, and those places do not have less drug users or incidences of mental health problems. Spikes in the cost of housing are the number one predictor of homelessness. It's not the actual amount, but this, like a big spike. Uh, some people being unable to absorb a rent increase. That is the, that is the best predictor of, of homelessness. While all those other problems, like drug uh, problems and mental problems, are highly associated with homelessness, none of them does as good of a job telling us why this is happening other than like, oh, you can't find an apartment for $400 or $300, some radically affordable housing that anybody could afford, or at least somebody who's making like a social security disability check could afford. This, this is a highly complicated answer. And maybe, maybe the best way to do it is not to make it complicated and just to simplify it, which is to say the economy since the late 1970s has become highly unequal and highly unstable. There, uh, the median income has gone down quite a bit for lower wage workers. The social compact between companies and their workers has been frayed quite a bit. And on top of that, housing has become much, much, much more expensive. And there's a million other things I could probably throw in there. But it was not true that in the 60s that there were lots of people working full-time, living below the poverty rate. If you worked full-time, you were probably doing fine. Were you living like slightly above the poverty rate? Were things going great for you? Like, no, there's obviously always been poverty. But there was not a large amount of Americans who are working full-time and, you know, I mean, there was this famous example a couple years ago about McDonald's having a, a, a section of its employee intranet where they would help you apply for food stamps. Like, Come work here and we'll help you. Just think about that. That's, it doesn't sound that remarkable to us now because we're living in this world where we know McDonald's workers are pretty close to the edge. But if you were to tell people that in the 60s that, that somebody would work full time and be needing government assistance, this would seem like a preposterous scenario. So I think homelessness is just the most like vile, uh, when I say vile, I don't mean the people, I mean the, the fact that we allow this uh, in our country. I think it's just the most mean expression of how kind of mean this economy has become. And obviously, when you see people on the, on the street who are very obviously sick, it's very easy to, to say, well, that person should be in a mental institution or, or have some kind of professional care. They are not going to just take a shower and start working at, 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 a, at a great job. While that's true, that's not a huge amount of who's homeless. I mean, all these people in our, living in RVs, I have interviewed tons of them. 
a lot of them go to work. A lot of them, I would say most of them go to work. They have totally reasonable jobs. I have a friend I went to, to elementary school with in San Francisco, and I saw her the other day. She was working at a donut store that everybody who listens to this podcast has probably heard of. And, and I said to her, hey, how you been? You still over there by Tower Market? Or, you know, and she said, no, I live in the van. She called it her mansion. But she's homeless. She's not sleeping on the street. She's working. So I think that we need to, when we're talking about homelessness, we sometimes need to know what we're talking about. A lot of homelessness just has to do with the instability we've created in the economy and the, and the just brutalness of having people work jobs that have highly erratic hours, that don't pay enough to cover basic living expenses, even if you do them 50, 60, 70 hours a week. And, and as you said, the, the total lack of affordable housing. And, and that kind of leads into the next question, which is, uh, you know, you cite a report in the book about how California would need three and a half million more homes to put a big dent, maybe, quote unquote, solve this housing crisis. But with the current median cost of one unit of housing being $425,000, obviously, I think it's about twice or maybe even three times that much in places like San Francisco, throwing even as much as... I think the figure you give in the book is like $12 billion would barely cover 1% of that goal. How did it get so expensive to build in California? Why are these costs per unit so astronomically high now? What are the kind of historical milestones that got us there? Paul Krugman, who's a columnist at the New York Times and a Nobel Prize winning economist, has said, productivity doesn't matter in the short term, but in the long term, it's the only thing that matters. Productivity is, it's a, it's a somewhat wonky phrase that means basically output per hours worked. It's not something that's unfamiliar to us. If you think about like the entire arc of like human civilization, it has pretty much universally involved prosperity by having to do less work. Step one is having animals do work for you, uh, things like the wheel. Over time, you're either having an animal or a machine make your job easier. And so you can have more food or more housing or more Twitter ads in, in a, in a much, for, for much lower cost. Industries that are not terribly productive, and I don't mean that this is a bad thing, it just means that it is what it is, tend to fall victim to what economists call cost disease, which means that the unit cost is going to keep going up. Productivity in construction is putrid. It has, it has essentially not changed since the 40s. When we started learning how to build big suburban homes, effectively a production line at the site, the balloon frame construction, that was the last big radical step we took to make housing construction way cheaper. And none of that has really filtered over into building large, larger apartment buildings. There are some scattered examples, but if we want to make housing more affordable, we're going to have to do all the things you and I have talked about in this interview. So we're going to have to make more of it. We're going to have to subsidize it for people who can't afford it or raise the minimum wage by like 10 times. So technology is not going to like solve this problem. And the techno-optimists who say it will are insane. But it can definitely help. 
I have not totally answered your question, but you asked how it became more too expensive. Yeah, why is There's it so? Ex yeah. Why does it cost half a million dollars at least ballpark to build a unit of housing in California and even more in the Bay Area right now? So part of that is the cost of regulation and the cost of how long it takes to build stuff. Part of it is the actual fees. There are there are condos in San Francisco that have like two hundred thousand dollars in fees on them. I mean, Christ, $200,000 is like, that's like real money. That's not, you know, an extra 20 grand that gets amortized over 30 years. I mean, that, that is a significant increase in your payment if you're some, I mean, maybe not if it's a multi-million dollar condo, but you're still starting to add huge costs to projects. And then on top of that is, I should say, denser housing is more expensive to build. Just think about how hard it is to bring a truck to a place and, and the disruptions you have on track. You know, it's just not as easy to build in a crowded area as it is where there's nothing there. And, and land is more scarce. That is true. All these things have conspired to make California much more expensive. I think that most of these are political problems. And I spend most of the book talking about them. You know, how do you make it predictable? I mean, one of the things I think is... I mean, people will say to me, like, oh, you think it should be easier to build housing? Well, what about local control? All these things. And I'm like, you know, zoning is a very public, very open process. You can go and say, I mean, it takes years to come up with general plans that cities have. And the Eastern Neighborhoods Plan in San Francisco, I think, took like 10 years. You know, th there are these giant plans that, and those are very public processes and people can give input into them. I think that once those plans are set, how you operate within them should be relatively predictable. Mm. You should have a big fight, a huge, contentious political fight about where and how you're going to build. And everyone should take hits and everyone should be angry. And then you figure out a way you're going to go forward. And everyone loses something and everyone gains something. But then once you've gone through that process... It should probably be relatively predictable how it's going to proceed from there. And I think that's, that's kind of what we've lost. We make everything kind of one-off piecemeal. So that's, that's a political problem. But as I said, you know, the productivity side of this, the actual how do you build a building more cheaply, that could be, a, that should and could be a part of the solution. And, and also, I think, by the way, I don't want to get too Pollyannish, though you do need some good news in the world. I think that also that could be a way to create new blue-collar jobs that have a real opportunity to lift, to, to take people from like $12 an hour job to like $40 an hour jobs. Uh, when I was at Factory OS, which is a factory up in Vallejo, built by a local developer here in, uh, he lives in Berkeley, but he does a lot of projects in Oakland and is doing a project that I followed in Oakland. Right. Uh, we're talking about Rick Holiday here? Yes. So I thought, by the way, I thought Rick was a fascinating character for the book because he's founded Bridge. So he's a, his, his origins are as an affordable housing developer. Just for people who aren't familiar with Bridge, can you explain what that yes. is? Bridge is one of the largest nonprofit affordable housing developers in the country. And they, in a lot of ways, pioneered the nonprofit model. They predate the low-income housing tax credit, which is the, the main way we, it's a federal program, which is the main way through which we build affordable housing now. And he said to me, you know, I, I cannot keep doing this work. I, I could either just retire or I could do this work a different way. But building buildings the way I've built them my whole career is just not going to work anymore. And I, I can't financially make it work. I can't, you know. I think that new 
ways of building housing and new ways of building dense buildings are going to turn out to have been a huge tectonic change for our cities and our country. And just to clarify, what you're referring to now is um, Rick Holiday is co-owner of this uh, yes. factory up, uh, is it Mare Island, where they're building these modular kind of prefab uh, houses that they can basically truck into a place like West Oakland and, and kind of put together almost like uh, building a giant Lego house or something like that? Yes. What they do is they build these units in a factory. It's about, I think it's 27 steps or 22 steps. And it's fascinating when you go there, you see they begin with just some plywood or it's, you know, it's, they, they have a different word for it, but it's, it looks like plywood and it goes up on this like little conveyor belt and, and then they start building a floor and then it goes up on this like kind of gangway and then some guys are below the piece of plywood putting pipes and all these things that are typically under a floor while right above these people on this platform above them are putting down flooring and soundproofing stuff and, you know, because it's going to be a multi-unit uh, tall building. And then it just continues. They put in toilets and, you know, they just go, go, go. And then there's this weird step where they put the roof on. And then you, by the end of the step, you are walking around. It's not furnished, but there are sinks, there are tile, there's backsplash, there's, you know, it looks like an apartment. Then they go and they can mix and match them in different ways. So some of them can be twice the size and whatever. You just put a couple units together. And what they then do is they truck them out. They, they wrap them in white plastic. There's this scene in the book that I talk about where it's like this surreal scene where they're just this, you can just drive by them. I took videos of them. You can just drive by and it takes you several minutes to just drive by just this almost like a boneyard for fully built apartments. And then they take them to the site and they bolt them all together and they build them. Now it takes, it, they just did one right near here by West Oakland. They put the building up in a day. It will require, I think it obviously take, it takes months to build the units that then get put together in a day. And it probably takes, it probably, I think it probably takes a year or more, something like that to actually complete it where people could like move in. It's still relatively, it's still quite a lot faster than how they're doing it now. I actually am really excited to see investment going towards things like this rather than the next social media app or whatever. It, 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 it's, even if nobody figures it out, it, it will have been worth trying. Right, you've got to experiment with different potential solutions to find the right one. Yeah, and also one of the frameworks I think I brought to this story is that, so we're having a conversation in America right now, particularly in the Bay Area, where there's a lot of people who say, I hate capitalism, capitalism is bad, and burn it all down and whatever. I think in my own mind, I have a slightly different frame on that, which is when I see what's called rent seeking, which is people just sitting on, I mean, it's literal rent seeking, but also people sitting on a technology that makes a bunch of money and not improving it, or, you know, and warding off competitors. Um, when I see financialization of things, which is just kind of spreadsheet capitalism, as they say, I think those, those methods of making money, though obviously you need banks and, you know, you need some degree of predictable return. I think we've gone too far in that direction. And I think that that's why people do think business is essentially evil because, 
you know, they see, well, what are the schemes to become a billionaire these days? They're like, obviously this is less true here, but they're, oh, start a hedge fund that just goes and borrows lots of bank money and then dividend half of it to yourself and then use the rest to fire everyone in this company and then try to take a public with a load of debt. And then if it goes bankrupt, who cares? Because you already gave yourself half the bank's money anyway. I mean, that's how a lot of private equity deals work. I mean, who could be inspired by that? Who could believe that's an honorable way of, of making a living? Right, or that is benefiting society in any way. Exactly. But when people are taking, risking financial capital to try to come up with things that might produce something people need, like housing, better or cheaper, I think that that, you know, there's nothing that says the government can't do that. So obviously if somebody wanted to have some giant government lab where they figured it out and, and, and because of their particular ideology, that seemed like a better way of doing it, that would be great too. But I meant somebody has to go and ask, can we actually do some of these big things? Can we actually just build buildings for cheaper? Can, because it does suck. I mean, wh one of the reasons people don't like having buildings uh, put up near them is it's like five years of disruption. Well, they're building that thing over at 40th or is it at 51st and Telegraph? Is that what it is? That, by the way, that's a modular building. Did you, have you seen yeah, that? Yeah, I, I walk and ride my bike past yeah. it all the time. So, I mean, obviously that one has been going up for quite some time, but I meant over time as those technologies hopefully start to get figured out, it, it, it might make people less, you know, hate development less because... It's less of a disruption in your neighborhood. Yeah, totally. So I, I actually... I'm not by any means a techno-optimist. I mean, we need a uh, better education. We need a better... We need things in this country that cost money. And I'm not sure how you get that money other than taxing. But if, if we really want to solve this housing problem under the current construct of America, which some people don't like accepting, unleashing the private sector toward a worthy goal, like building middle-income or even affordable housing without subsidy. If we can start to do that, then we will really start to make headway on this problem. Although the flip side of that in terms of kind of unleashing the private market on the on you know the housing market is look at what has been happening uh, in the Bay Area and other places since the Great Recession, which is the rise of getting back to what you said about the way that hedge funds and private equity firms operate, you know, these kinds of corporate faceless landlords that have scooped up all this property since, you know, 2007, 2008 and um, so, distorted the market in, in pretty destructive ways. And you talked about that a little bit in the book. And I'm wondering, you know, you look like you're ready to jump in and respond to it right now. So uh, what do you got to say? No, but so there, there, is a, there, there are two chapters right next to each other. Not an accident. In one chapter, you see an investor going and buying a building that a bunch of lower income service workers live in essentially evicting everyone and trying to make it a super high-end building. And there's a very, it's like the, even, uh, just to interrupt you real briefly, like the, uh, the language that they use is so dehumanizing. I think they refer to the current tenants who are paying below market rates as like underperforming assets. Yeah, yeah. There, there's, yes. And, and they, call, they call clearing people out and bringing new tenants and retenanting. Nice and sterile. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so... I think that, and then they, they also use the term stabilizing. Stabilizing means raising the rents like 100%. Yeah, not stabilizing for the, rent, for the tenants exactly. or the community. So that, but that's like, a, that's a money-making scheme. It's a money-making scheme that whatever you think about it uh, morally, 
is not terribly productive. If you were to go talk to a very free market thinking economist, very conservative as economists go, they would tell you that person's role in the economic system is price signaling, which means they are telling us that these apartments could rent for a lot more money than they currently are. That is their, that is their only job in the economic system. It's a, it's a minimal job. But then I juxtapose that chapter with someone who's, tr who's risking investors' money to try to build housing in a better, cheaper way. I do not consider those to be anything like the same pursuit. And I think one of the things that we've, we've lost when we talk about this in the, in the Bay Area so much these days is we often put developers who go and build housing on like an empty lot in the same category as people who go and buy an existing apartment and clear everyone out and raise the rent. Those are not the same activity. They could not be more different. Um, not only could they not be more different, the, their, their role, I mean, even if you want to get super theoretical, their roles in the economic system are quite different. One is literally productive, is moving things forward, is trying to figure out how we can produce more housing for less cost. And the other is really just kind of sitting on, on a plot of land and trying to charge a toll on it. Um, the first, the epigraph of this book is from Henry George, who you may or may not know, but is this kind of somewhat famous economist. I don't know if you'd even call him an economist, but he was like kind of like a, a, an essayist, you know, polemicist writer who was uh, very active in San Francisco and wrote this famous, famous, famous book called Progress and Poverty. And his whole construct is that rent is evil, but he means rent in a, in a bunch of different ways. Basically, this activity of sitting on land until someone else who is more productive. Well, just so people know what you're talking about, can yes, you read the epigraph? The quote, the quote was much longer before, but it was, it is a fresh and continuous robbery that goes on every day and every hour. So if you think about it, and this, we're getting very, very theoretical here, but if you think about it, the people who are making that land productive are the nannies and the construction workers and the gardeners. I'm not, these, for what it's worth, I did interview people in this building, so that, that is actually who lived there. A cook also lived there. Those are the people who are making that land productive. They are helping our economy. They are providing services for other people. They are part of this ecosystem in the Bay Area, which is why we all live here. I mean, we might also live here because it's beautiful and other things, but we're all just kind of trying to live here to eat, drink, raise families, the things people do. And the landlord is essentially living off their, off their contribution. And don't get me wrong, there's, there's some of that that should happen. It shouldn't be to the level that we have right now. By the way, I'm, again, we're really getting off into econ speak, but the reason that this business model is currently so lucrative is that it's very, very hard to build housing. And on top of that, the new housing is considerably more expensive than existing housing. So when you have such a large gap between the replacement cost and the current already there unit, it is going to encourage people to essentially raise the cost of the currently affordable unit. We should be passing laws to make that activity more difficult and expensive if we want it to stop. That's part of the solution. But it doesn't 
you, you can only legislate your way to so much. At some point, you have to ask the question, why is that happening? What is the underlying disease? And the underlying disease is that there's a lot more jobs and a lot more opportunity than there is spaces for people here. And it is gonna, I mean, the thing I always say about housing is that it's, it's such a hard conversation to have. It's such an angry and emotional conversation for all the obvious reasons that housing is very personal and all that. But on top of that, everyone's kind of right. When people say we don't have enough housing, they're totally right. right. When people say we don't have enough affordable housing, they're right. When people say Airbnb is taking some units off the market, they shouldn't, they're right. When people say some units are vacant, they're right. All these things are happening. I, I think that at some level though, what my quest as a journalist is, is to ask like, which seem the most important? Like mm -hmm. if we got rid of Airbnb tomorrow, would that get rid of our housing mess? I don't, I don't think so. I think, it would, I think it would bring a very small number of units back online, and, but I don't think it would largely materially change the situation. In certain neighborhoods it might, you know, so when I look at the very large disease, it seems to me that like having a lot more jobs and a lot more opportunity than is the, is the, is, that is the disease. All right, we're going to have to end things there. But if you want to hear more from Connor Doherty, the author of Golden Gates, He's on a mini book tour all across the Bay Area right now. So you can go see him in person or, you know, just pick up the book from one of the Bay Area's many fine, independent, locally owned bookstores. As always, thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow East Bay Yesterday on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and please spread the word. Tell all your friends to listen to this show on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. Music for this episode came from local producer, Justin Lee. Thank you, Justin. I've been your host, Liam O'Donohue, and I'll be back soon with more episodes of East Bay Yesterday.